Well, hello, everybody. It's uh, Pastor Adam again, and I look forward to uh, bringing an encouragement today, uh, a teaching from the Word of God. So let's go to the Lord first and acknowledge His presence. Father, we thank You for we know You're everywhere. You're everything. You're anything we could ever want. And we come to You humbly today and thank You for this opportunity to talk about Your Word, about things going on in our lives and how You have set up things that can make them better, make our life better while we are here. So we thank you, Lord, for this through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Now, let me go ahead and say something um, I think many of us have thought, and possibly even you've already thought this today, this day. Here it is. Trusting in the Lord does not mean everything is going to be okay. You know, there's this thing that I will call it the disappointment with God thing. And if you do not know how to navigate this truth when difficult times come, well, it's, people have a hard time recovering. You know, for instance, you know, if you've been in a church setting, you've probably heard a pastor say something like this. It might not, it probably isn't even a pastor. It's just Christians will say this. But many times from the pulpit, you'll hear You'll hear people say, you follow God and he's going to take care of you. And you know what? Frequently, there'd be a smattering of hearty amens throughout the congregation, followed by things like, preach it, brother. And usually, most of the people would leave happy and confident that life was going to be okay because God takes care of those who give their lives to the Lord. Right? And undoubtedly, many have heard that message And, you know, when they were new at this, when they were a new uh, Christian, and then, you know, sometimes it's soon after that, but it could be years later, they are hurt. They're angry at God because life has not worked out the way they wanted it to. They go through something like, you know, an unexpected death or, you know, I don't know, things like uh, maybe a divorce You know, there's just so many things that you could fill in the blank there. And what happens is people are hurt and inevitably they become angry at God. And I think, you know, so many of us process things like that as the Lord did not take care of me or he didn't take care of me the way I expected or anticipated. So I'm saying all this because I think many of us can relate to that. And I'm talking about those things where your life took a turn that wasn't really expected, especially after you submitted and said you're going to follow Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. This thing I just described, this kind of scenario, is the most common one I've witnessed in the 20-plus years I've been in ministry leadership. People somehow pick up on the notion of God taking care of them and therefore things are going to be different according to their expectations. And at the beginning of their journey with Jesus, life is, is like refreshingly different and it's mostly a positive thing. Many, many, of, many people I find come out of, a, you know, uh, I guess uh, a generalization I'll say here, but it's kind of, I guess I could say it's an abusive family structure. Uh, they come out of a drug culture. Um, many have told me looking back on things reflectively, you know, hey, I, I was at a point in my life, they'd say, where, you know, I'm going to give 
religion a chance. I'm gonna get, what do I got to lose, right? In other words, anything was better than the life they were living. So they're like, let's give Christianity a go. Let me give this Jesus thing a go. And so at the beginning of this, God is new. He's fresh, he's alive and pure, right? And for the first time, many are living a weighty different life. Something they're like, oh my gosh, if I would have only known, I would have preferred to have been living this way all the time. And then what happens inevitably is there's a bump in the road. And I, they kind of fell off the God's going to take care of me bandwagon. You know, things just don't go the way they had things planned. And it revealed what it reveals now in the human, in, in us, is an unprepared heart that could not accommodate life. These turns of events that, that just manifest in life. And you know what I found? Regardless of how many times we talk about this, it catches so many people by surprise. We find ourselves somewhere between, I guess it's the regretful tension of a would have, should have dream and the actual story that's being written in our lives. It's being played out before our eyes. And so many of us are not prepared for that reality. Somehow, so many slip into the mindset of thinking that you know, we can have this best life now kind of thing. We, we, we're confused about life on earth as though it was supposed to be like living in heaven. We want to experience heaven on earth rather than the fallenness, the brokenness of this sinful place called earth. And what happens is we blend this two-part Christian life into a hybrid of our own making. Even though we believe in the two parts, right? The earth part and the heaven part, the eternal part. We get them, you know, I guess kind of blended and twisted in our mind. You know, James, the, in the book of James, he talked about the earth part. He referred to the earth part that we live, that we're living right now as a mist. When he gives this line in scripture in James 4, 14, he goes, why? You do not even know what will happen tomorrow. He's talking about, you know, he goes, what is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Another case, in the writer of Hebrew, in the book, book of Hebrews, he gives his big thoughts about the future when he fixes our gaze on our permanent dwelling, the eternal part. The part has very little in common, though, with our life on earth. Here's what Hebrews 11, verse 13 says. These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off were assured of them embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. Now, you can find scores of other passages, other scripture that separate the missed life, which is, again, the life in the here and now on earth, from the future life, the next realm, or the heaven, the eternal realm. Now, there are a few keys we need to remember about this, what we're talking about. One is that we will live both of these lives. And here's another thing that, that, that we're, a key, you gotta remember. We will live these lives in a particular order. And a, and a third thing is the, these two lives are connected, but they're not overlapping. The missed life is on earth. And what do we have here? We have battles, wars, evil, sin, casualties, <laughs> Troubles. Now, the, the, the future life is heaven, which 
has no war, no evil, no sin, no casualties. Now, if you don't have this contrast and order fixed in your head, you're going to be set up for a lot of disappointment. And from there, frequently I see people fall into the traps of discouragement, discontentment, disillusionment, and possibly even disbelief. And I've seen this all too often, and it wreaks havoc with our souls. See, when people fall and the numbness wears off, they're discouraged, discontented, disillusioned, and on the verge of unbelief. (coughs) Excuse me. And they're going to say things like, well, why, oh, why should I follow God? I was doing the thing God says to do, and he couldn't keep me from being hurt. Okay, you know, there's other things people say, but you, you may have said things like this yourself or heard people say things like this. Excuse me, I gotta, I gotta blow my nose. And I wanna, I wanna point out here, there's an error in this way of thinking and processing. And I wanna, I wanna slow down here and make sure we understand what's going on. If we understand following God just like that, then our understanding of suffering in an evil world is immature and incomplete. And, and in other words, we really don't understand what we are to be doing while we're here on earth. Now, there are quite a few scriptures that we have heard or maybe even taught that we do not personally and practically apply. And I'm, I'm, referring, I'm referring to the many verses that talk about suffering in an evil world. In fact, Every New Testament book has these type of verses. Now, they make great preaching and teaching texts, but they're very challenging and hard texts to live by. For instance, here's, here's just a few. 2 Timothy 2 verse 3 says, Share in suffering as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. Philippians 1 Verse 29 says, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for Christ's sake. 1 Peter 2, verse 21. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. Oh, that's just a few, right? And this Peter passage in 1 Peter chapter 2 there is one of the most difficult and challenging passages that I think we could ever read. Now, this discourse that Peter shares goes from like 1 Peter 2, verse 18 to 1 Peter 3, verse 7. And it's critical. It's it's critically important to get the context because of how Peter uses this part about suffering that he talks about in chapter 2, verses 18 through 25. And then you know what he does at the end? He he turns it here in chapter three and applies it to marriage. (laughs) In 1 Peter chapter two, verses 18 through 25, he's developing a robust theology of suffering as he connects the heart of our life here on earth to the Savior, Jesus Christ. This missed life that we have here on earth to Jesus. He says that there is a call upon us to suffer just as your Savior lived out his call to suffer for you. He then appeals to us, the reader, to walk in Jesus' steps. I find some irony here in this verse because it was the premise for the book by Charles Sheldon called In His Steps. 
I don't expect many people to know who Charles Sheldon is or that book, but I think you'll remember the slogan that came from that book. It was WWJD, what would Jesus do? Now, this is back in the 1990s, and the Christian community went bonkers over WWJD. And the context for this idea was all about suffering, that, that we are called to suffer. Do you remember all the slick little bracelets made? They were cutesy, but the reality of genuinely living that kind of life is like thunder and lightning in our soul. You know, I'm talking about dying a martyr's death is far more traumatizing than wearing a high-gloss bracelet or, you know, making millions of dollars by placing that slogan on a T-shirt on hats so that the Christian community can sport their relevance and herd mentality. Here's the deal. You'll know if your what would Jesus do bracelet is authentically working for you the next time someone breaks your heart. I'm talking about things, for instance, when you step out in the courthouse steps just after the judge declares you divorced and in a matter of seconds, you lose your spouse and your kids. Or when you get that unexpected phone call that your relative died in a car crash. These are the moments when the evil in this world crushes your life and either your faith will carry you through or it will disappear like a worn out novelty bracelet. Oh gosh, I grant you that WWJD, what would Jesus do was a cool fad. But I'm telling you, it does not help you in trauma. Your help's not gonna come from what's on your wrist, but it's it's gonna help from what's in your heart. You know, so often in the past 20 years, I have heard this term that has kind of been forced within within the Christian community. It's the term relevant Christian. Will you be a relevant Christian? Well, so many of these people that are so upset with God were relevant Christians, but the power of the gospel did not shape their heart and mind. The gospel talks about someone murdering a man who came to earth to live a Christian life. That man was Jesus Christ. The mind-bending other side of the gospel talks about a heavenly father permitting those evil people to murder his son. Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah says, it's the will of the Lord to crush his one and only son. We have, we have two ways to look at this dilemma, to look at this problem. On one side, we see a man being put to death by cruel people. Yep, that's all true. And on the other side, we see a man being crushed by his father. Yep, that's all true. And these two concepts are essential for us to know. Both of them are true. Yes, God allowed sin to happen to a perfect person. And yes, God can use sin sinlessly. (laughs) So it would be interesting for each one of us to diagnose how you think about the problems that come into your life. For instance, just throwing this out there. Do you see your problems primarily as what is happening to you on earth by evil people or evil circumstances? Or do you see your problems primarily as your heavenly father being up to something profound in your life? Now, I'll give you this. What I just said, it's kind of a trick question because you want to know something? Both of the things are true. But one of these ideas should have numero uno primacy in our hearts and minds. 
The question, which we can't avoid, is which one? And sadly, if you're a problem-centered and can only think about the evil that is happening to you at this moment, you're going to miss the truth of a kind father working in your life. If you primarily see the bad stuff happening to you as part of God's story that he is writing for his glory, well, then you're going to be right in line with his thinking and his will. And this perspective will also position you to receive amazing grace that will assist you through whatever your ordeal is. Your heart and mind's perspective about the Lord will set your life trajectory, in other words. Now, I want to reference a real-life experience that I think will help you know, plant this deep root in our hearts. So I'm going to use myself, an example of my life, a portion of my life. I lived in California roughly about two and a half years of my life, not at all at the same time, but during my Navy training. I lived in Sacramento, I lived in Mountain View, and I lived in San Diego. I spent a majority of that time in Mountain View, California, which is just south of San Francisco, about 45 minutes. I spent about a year and a half there of the two and a half years. And where that is, I'm about an hour away from Pebble Beach, which is an hour south of where I lived in Mountain View, California. Now, you may have heard of Pebble Beach because it's famous for its name. It's got these beautiful pebbles found there, and there's a very prestigious golf tournament golf course that's always held there. Now, those pebbles are famous because of their beauty. The raging surf continually roars and pounds against these rocks and pebbles there. And the pebbles, they're trapped in the arms of these waves. And the waves are merciless. They're tossed, rolled, rubbed together, ground against the sharp edges of the cliffs. All day, all night, this process of grinding continues relentlessly. And what is the result of that? People from all over the planet go there to collect these beautiful round stones. These pebbles are displayed in people's furnitures. They decorate people's homes. Now, just a little further up the coast, just around the point of a cliff, not far from there, is a very peaceful, quiet cove. It's protected from the face of the ocean, sheltered from the storms, and It's always in the sun, seems like. The sands are covered with an abundance of pebbles, but these pebbles are never sought at by travelers. And why are these pebbles that are left untouched not sought after? It's not complicated. It's simple. It's because they have escaped all the turmoil and grinding of the waves. The quietness and peace have left them as they always been. They're rough, they're unpolished, and they're devoid of the beauty that the pebbles down by Pebble Beach have. Now, the Messiah, Jesus, came to show the world that he had a higher and greater worldview than just this life. He has a vision for a greater ending, which gave him empowering endurance for the suffering he went through on earth. Hebrews 12.2 says, Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross and despised the shame and is set at the right hand of the throne of God. So, okay, of course, we know that Jesus believed his father and was willing to come to earth to endure harsh suffering because he knew there was a greater good. Okay, so here you and I are today 
And I'm sure it inspires us when we reflect on what Jesus did. But here's the deal. Here's the the rub. Do you believe in God? And you know what? More than likely, you're going to say, of course, yes. And hallelujah, you should. But what I'm really asking is a more in-depth question. I'm talking about a faith that transcends your pain and suffering. I'm talking about an enduring faith, not an emotional outburst type of faith. The only thing that will give us the power to endure these kinds of trials is this kind of faith in God alone. Only God can sustain us through our trials. Our job, our responsibility, our response is to believe him, to have faith in him. We must know, we must have faith that he is working for us even when we can't see him. We must be confident, right? We must have faith that he will not ultimately let us down. We must hope, we must have faith that no matter what comes our way, God is there and he is working out a better future for us. That's the kind of confidence, that's the kind of faith I'm talking about for us. It's faith alone in God alone. Now, you may not get your self-defined best life now, but if you're rightly positioned your faith in God alone, you have a surprising and satisfying experience that nobody can question. The real question is, what do you want? What would make you happy? And the way you answer that question, I believe, is by asking a better question or a different question. And that question goes something like this. I could be happy if blank. And you know what? There's only one right answer to that question. It's it's something like this. I could be happy if God were my king, period. What does Exodus 20, verse three say? This is the first and greatest commandment you shall have no other gods before me. In other words, God was telling us, has always been telling us, nothing else can be equal with me, he says, or be as significant as me. It's God alone. The confusion for most is why was Christ willing to give up his life? Why? Because Jesus believed the Father. He believed he'd be okay. Jesus told us to not fear those who killed the body and cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Hmm. Now here's some irony. See, when we can find satisfaction with God alone and we don't need anything else to make us happy, then you can have this piece of heaven on earth. This is a soul condition is the heavenly jewel of contentment in our earthly life now. You can experience the future life of rest and contentment today. This kind of experience does not mean God will protect you from all you know, present evil or trouble. No. I mean, Jesus, he gives this example. He was able to sleep in the midst of a storm. And you know what? You can too. But you must not fall into the trap of thinking you're not in a war here on earth. Rest and contentment, people, come from God-centered confidence that he is ultimately in control, even if you lose your earthly life. 
Our problem is that we love our earthly lives too much while making claim for some of life's pleasures and perks as though that is all that matters. And folks, if that's how you think, I'm just telling you the facts, then you're going to be an unstable and disillusioned Christian. Hmm. Let me, let, let me give us another story. Or actually, I guess this is more like a parable. There's this fable, if you will, about how birds got their wings. The story goes that initially they were made, birds were made without wings. Then God made the wings and set them down before the birds and said, take up these burdens and carry them. Now the birds had these sweet voices and lovely feathers, but they could not soar in the air. So when God asked them to pick up the burdens, the the birds hesitated at first. Yet soon they obeyed and picked up the wings with their beaks and set them on their shoulders and carried them. Now for a short time, the load seemed heavy and difficult, but soon as they continued to carry the burden and to fold the wings over their hearts, the wings grew attached to their little bodies. And they quickly discovered how to use them and were lifted by the wings high into the air. These weights had become wings. Now, I hope we can see that connection for we are the wingless birds and our duties and our tasks are the wings. We, we look at our burdens and heavy loads and try to run from them. But if we will carry them and tie them to our hearts, they will become wings and we will soar towards God. You know, we cannot serve two masters. Jesus is very clear on that. He tells us no one can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God in money. Now, this is a redundant question. But do you want peace on earth? Of course we do. I'm sure we all go, yes. And we can have it but God may have to kill you first. Only when we die to our selfish ambition, our secret desires, our pet preferences, and unexpected outcomes, will we be able to enjoy peace on earth. Jesus also told us that if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? Jesus also said, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciples. Got to understand, and that thing he's just saying, when he says, does not hate his own, that means does, loves less. Does not love less his mother, father, wife and children and brothers and sisters than him. That's what that means. Doesn't mean hate like we think. It means love less. See, we must count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ our Lord. Paul Paul wrote this letter to the Philippian church that he suffered the loss of all things and counted them as rubbish in order that he could gain Christ and be found in Christ that he could know Christ and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like Christ in death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. So, as I end this, we just can't lose sight. We can't forget that following the teaching 
of Jesus Christ means denying the self and conforming to the will of God. That's the strive. That's the goal. That's what we need to never lose sight of. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord and have a glorious and wonderful rest of your day. God bless you.